Hi, I'm Valerie Steele, Director and Chief Curator of the Museum at FIT, the most fashionable museum in New York City. Welcome to our Fashion Culture podcast series, featuring lectures and conversations about fashion. If you like what you hear, please share your thoughts on social media using the hashtag #FashionCulture. My name is Tania Melendez Escalante, and I am Senior Curator of Education and Public Programs at the Museum at FIT. We are honored to welcome Randy Cohen, creator of the public radio program, Person, Place, and Thing. Randy says his guests are at their most engaging when they talk about whatever they find most, most meaningful. He will interview uh, for a recorded broadcast our very own director, Dr. Valerie Steele, who will talk about her most memorable person, place, and thing. Please join me in welcoming Randy Cohen on stage. Thank you. Um, as Tanya said, I think uh, people are particularly interesting when they don't speak directly about themselves, but about things they care about. And that's the structure we'll use tonight. Uh, Valerie will talk about one person, one place, and one thing that are meaningful to her. Uh, we're recording for broadcast. It's a show. It's a radio show. And, and to me, that means there has to be music. And I'm delighted that this evening the music will be Eleanor Vey and Ali Deneen. Who's your person? Uh, Gabrielle Coco Chanel. Why? Well, Wasn't because that an expressive she's the most, probably the most influential fashion designer of the 20th century. And since I spent my whole life studying fashion, then it seemed that she would have to play some kind of an important role in my imaginary. Um, one of the pleasures of being a deeply ignorant man, as I am, is um, someone erudite like you will suggest who their person is, and I get to do the research. And it was just, how could I not know this? She was incredible. Well, there are about a million books about her, which testify to everybody's fascination with her. Although they're fascinated on the whole by things like 
who she had affairs with and things everybody. like that. Yeah, everybody. 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 As long as, since you brought it up, I wasn't <laughs> even going to mention it. Um, but since you brought it up, um, and correct me if I have any of these wrong, Stravinsky? Um, you don't think of Stravinsky as a sexy guy. Hard to tell. They made a movie out of it. I can't remember who played him. Wow. <laughs> um, Picasso? That I don't know. Um, and apparently... She certainly wasn't his type. She had a type? I thought her type no, was no. anyone... No, I mean, she wasn't his type. Oh, he had a type? Um, <laughs> uh, but I read that she dressed his wife for Olga. their wedding. Olga, right? Yes. Probably so. And yes. then slept with the groom. That I hadn't... I don't recall reading that. Um, Salvador Dali? Oh, I don't think so. I don't think he liked to have sex. He just watched. Wow. I, you know things that are, you know, a little disturbing. Um, she was, by most accounts, a genius, but also a really horrible person. Yes, like Picasso or, you know, uh, Wagner. She was really, really brilliant as a designer and just an absolutely despicable human being. Um, but that combination is just fascinating. It is the Wagner problem. Since it's you the Wagner problem, I mean, yes. She does, it wasn't just that she was unpleasant. She did really bad things. Well, I mean, she, she was anti-Semitic, as Wagner was. Um, whether she was actually a spy for the Nazis is not entirely clear. It looks that way. That's where the evidence is leading you. But I don't think she was very effective at that. Um, this is a feeble defense. She wasn't a good spy. Right. I'm just saying that, fortunately for us, like, you know, you think, thank goodness more thieves are not intelligent. I've heard people say, um, and, and far be it for me to drag the White House into the conversation, that, that <laughs> um, the current administration, it's um, um, uh, maliciousness mitigated only by incompetence. Yes, that's a wonderful phrase. Isn't that nice? I wish that were mine. Um, so. Um, she started as an orphan, yes? Well, she didn't start as an orphan. Everyone starts with parents. Oh, right. <laughs> you know fashion, you know biology. You're an amazing person. Her mother died early. Her father ditched her and her sister at an orphanage. She wasn't, strictly speaking, he was still alive for years, but he dropped them off in the orphanage and put his sons off to work as sort of indentured laborers at farms. And then the daughters grew up and became, she became a seamstress. And she dropped that fairly early on. Um, tried singing at a cabaret, which is probably where she got the nickname Coco, because there were lots of songs like Coco Rico and so on. It sounds like a courtesan name. Um, and then she decided it was probably better to be the mistress of a wealthy man than to be a seamstress. You can hardly blame her for choosing that alternative. So she did that, and then... As wait, wait, let's not skip over that too fast, because, um, and I don't blame her for that. Of the list of horrible things she did, I don't include that, but um, are you saying because of the limited choices a woman had in that time and place? There were so very limited choices, absolutely. And if you compare her with other dressmakers of that era, most of them, like, like Madeleine Viennet, who was very much the same age and also came from a very poor family and was sent out to work when she was 12, she started as an apprentice at a dressmaker's. And that's what she, she did. She worked her way up and eventually started her own couture house. But Chanel made this side turn uh, into being a mistress. And then, as she said later in an interview, she had, what did she put it? In some discussion that I think Dali talks about, she said, two men were fighting over my hot little body and I got the money to start this um, milliner shop. Right, so some, uh, I, what I, I read, yeah, that some w man she was sleeping with gave her the money to open the shop. Two, actually, two men. Two men. So, yes, she set up uh, a millinery shop and hired skilled milliners to work on this with her. And then she branched out then into sportswear, um, initially not in Paris, but at Deauville. So it was a, a resort town on the beach. And she did very expensive, very casual, modern-looking sportswear. What did we mean by, by sportswear then? So we're talking about before the First World War, right? Still, during the First World during War. During the First. So what sportswear? Well, uh, it wasn't for active sports, um, but it was comfortable dresses, skirts, sweaters that you could wear 
walking on the beach, you're walking through the resort town. It was not formal wear. I see, I see. Um, she becomes enormously successful, yeah? Yes, she says in 1919, she says, I woke up and I was famous. It's not quite that, but certainly by the early 20s, she is rapidly becoming famous. Um, she's known for things like the little black dress, although of course she didn't invent it. Everybody was doing little black dresses then. Um, and corsetless clothes that you wore with a brassiere, but again, everyone was doing that in the 20s. But she was really her own best fashion model. And so she was able to kind of epitomize the modern look that she was presenting. And this, I think, is really important. Uh, in an interview, Karl Lagerfeld said, you know, if you look back at magazines from the 1920s, you can't tell, looking at the photographs, which are the dresses by Chanel and which are the dresses by, you know, Patu or other designers. They all look very similar. And Patu was making active sportswear for, you know, tennis players, etc. So was Jane Reni. But what Chanel had was that she, in an era when women were dominating fashion, she looked like the modern woman. And it was such a time in the late teens, the 20s, and the 30s that a man like Jean Patou had even complained to the press saying, you don't have to be a woman to design women's clothes. Men can design fashion too. But because that was the age of the new woman, people thought, who better to dress a new woman than the new woman? And she seemed so glamorous. Um, when, can you explain to me what it meant to go buy a Chanel outfit in, say, before the Second World War? So there was no ready-to-wear. Yes. Sure there was ready-to-wear, absolutely. If, if you went to, she would have a show twice a year, um, roughly? Well, the How shows were look? not so formalized then yeah. as they became later. By the 30s, she was having shows twice a year. But um, you would go to, well, the boutique in Deauville or the Couture House in Paris, and there would be a selection of her designs from which you could choose. That's what couture means. So that was this season's clothing. There was yes, a sense of a season and her clothes for, season, her and collection for this it. year. Mm -hmm. And if you wanted a, 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 one of her outfits, then what happened? It, you, you paid a lot of money for it. For, uh, I, I once interviewed um, Mrs. James Rothschild oh, at her beautiful home in London. And she was someone who got married in a callow sister couture dress. Her favorite designer was V&A. So I said to her, Mrs. Rothschild, did you ever wear Chanel? And she said, oh no, my dear, she cost much too much. My husband would not have allowed that. Wow. So the whole, one of the things that she was clever about was she realized that people would value it more the more they paid for it. So initially when she was making things out of the cheapest possible materials like jersey, which you just used for like men's undershirts, she would charge so much for them that people, especially Americans, would think well, it must be good because she's charging so much. Really, especially Americans? Especially were we Americans. Heads even then? The Americans really were consistently among her most the richest clients. Well, Worth had said that before in the 19th century. He said he loved his American clients. They had the faces, the figures, and the francs. <laughs> so, okay, so I'm a, I'm a rich and um, unsophisticated American. I go, I go to, it's very sophisticated. I go to Chanel's Couture House, I see what's available, and then, but then how do I actually get the clothes? I mean, well, I don't take it off the rack in my size. No, of course not, it's fitted to you, and they make one in your size. But it's not, the idea of couture is not that it's hand sewn to you because any dressmaker can do that. Um, it's that you've chosen from a selection from a recognized couturier who's a member of the Chambre Syndicale. Uh, and you, you need a license, right? You have well, it's in, not, no? in, in effect, it's like a license. Okay, um, so at the, at the height, economically, there were what I thought about 4,000 people working for her. I guess at the height it was something like that, right. So is that what they were doing, sewing these um, dresses for the individuals? Yes, that's right. Silly Americans who, well, well not silly, no, but no. unsophisticated. But, but um, they just they were willing to pay it. It was worth it to them. Yeah. Um, and that became increasingly more worthwhile the more famous she became because then you could explain that it was a Chanel that you were wearing and that brand recognition ultimately became very, very important. But so yes, you would 
have it made to fit you. And the, the vendeuse, the saleswoman, would try and make sure that the exact dress that you chose, and I can't help smiling thinking of you choosing the dress, but the exact dress that you I chose would not be the dress that I chose because then we might appear at the same place in the same dress, and that would be distressing for both of us. Well, so how did they deal with that since the number of, of dresses in her collection was... Was limited. Well, you'd have it, at least we'd be in different colors or ah. something. They're so cunning. Um, um, so um, she tried Hollywood. She did. They, they offered her a big sum to come over to Hollywood, and she designed costumes for a couple of films. But apparently, they weren't Hollywoodish enough. What, does uh, that, what do you mean by that? Well, they were too low-key and tasteful. And <laughs> what you want to have on Hollywood is something that, that screams glamour. And apparently hers didn't scream loudly enough, and she didn't really like it there. So she went back, and in a way, Hollywood doesn't really want or need that season's couture. It wants something which is a costume that the, the heroine, who's a, a character, can wear that fits the plot. It's a, it's a different thing than uh, to be wearing fashion, per se. Oh, that makes sense, yeah. Oh, she said, I wrote this down, um, Hollywood is the capital of bad taste, and it is vulgar. <laughs> um, uh, although, you know, she had struck out. Um, morphine addict. That's, yes, her biographers say that. I think that's most, mostly later in her life. Uh, but she was, in her old age, certainly a morphine addict. Which, again, doesn't seem like a moral failing to me. That's just sad and different. It makes life difficult, but... Um, that's not one of the things, I, when I think of her as a horrible person, why you cited Wagner, that how do you um, associate her genius and her horribleness? I, I would not include morphine. Well, I think that, that, I mean, we talk about her horribleness, it comes down to a kind of anger and resentment against so many people, that she was anti-Semitic, she was racist, she was homophobic. I mean. Anybody who got on her wrong side, she didn't like them. She didn't like her workers when they struck. Um, they went on strike. The union buster, right, she, in effect. Exactly. In a, well, um, the war starts when the Germans occupy Paris. And correct me again if I have this wrong. Um, she shuts down. She lays off 4,000 people without a penny. Well, yes, that's right. They didn't get a golden parachute when they were fired. Well, golden parachute, you're They so were tough. hired by other people. Um, but no, she wasn't worried about staying in business to keep them employed. That, and that was a difference between someone like V&A, for example, who, because she'd come up and been the little girl picking up the pins and had been paid half of what the other people had been paid because she was younger, and et cetera, was very conscious of trying to make life easier for her employees and have they had um, you know a, a cafeteria they had sick leave etc on the other hand Chanel did give her workers paid vacations oh, which most well, people did right, so, so it was arbitrary Nazi she could spy paid vacations she could <laughs> she she was generous when she felt like it and she was really mean and hateful when she felt like that um, I think that you could say that it, growing up in this very harsh and unloving environment and, and having to sort of claw her way up um, made her, in many ways, a very hostile and resentful person. You don't mistreat people and expect them to grow up and be nice. True, true. Um, oh, let me read you um, a couple of things she said. Um, fashion should express the place, the moment. Does that sound like her to you? Yes, she was fond of coming up with these statements, some of which oh, were you're so true. Dismissive. Do you think she she liked to have aphorisms? Um, um, but I thought that one was interesting because um, fashion can be very ephemeral. But it's uh, impressed me how how her some of her designs, like the suits, were quite enduring. Well, she herself said, "Fashion must die and die quickly, so that the business can." It's not something so the business can live, but that was the emphasis that it had to change. Um, what about this? Um, um, success is often achieved by those who don't know that failure is inevitable. To me, this sounds like somebody who is just trying, thinking hard, to come up with this clever statement. Really? 
Really? You think there are um, people, she had people in the back writing? I don't think like she her? had people in the back writing them, but I think she would think about that and she would read aphorisms and then try and think of things I'm to so say. I'm so disappointed. I, I think I'm just going to, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, that, that it seems somehow not to express her. Or but there are plenty of books, if you like her little aphorisms, there are no, gazillion no, books. No, I don't like want your pity. Chanel's, no, no, you know? I, can read, <laughs> I can read Rochefoucauld. That's okay. Um, um, uh, do you have any, should we have any difficulty reconciling her genius as a designer, and I think that's not an exaggerated word, yeah? Mm -hmm. um, and her horribleness as a person. That's something that everybody has to decide for themselves. I mean, that's the same thing that you decide, are you gonna listen to Wagner, are right. you gonna look at Picasso, or are you gonna find them just too loathsome um, that you don't want to, to uh, deal with their work? Um, Personally, I don't see why we should expect that people should be nice just because they're good at their job. I mean, I just finished reading the Lucian Freud biography, and what a selfish son of a bitch he was. One of his girlfriends said that she, instead of counting sheep, she lay in bed counting Lucian's illegitimate children. <laughs> I mean, he, had, and he didn't take any care of most of them, etc. She was a horrible human being, but he's a really interesting artist. And I don't really see why we should expect that they would come together. So, uh, where's your place? Ça c'est Paris. Any place in particular? Well, within Paris, I guess I would say my favorite place is the Palais Royal. Tell me what it's like. Where is it? It's uh, it's opposite the Louvre. It's on the other side of the Rue de Rivoli. It's um, a building. It's a palace surrounded by a garden that. Uh, was established in the 18th century by the younger brother of the French king and then went down in the Dorleans family. And now it's got luxurious little boutiques and a couple's little cute restaurants and this beautiful, beautiful garden right in the middle of Paris. Um, it used to be, I read, uh, Cardinal Richelieu used to live there. Oh, so did, uh, so did Colette. So did for a while, I think, Cocteau. I mean, a lot of people live there. Can you imagine? It'd be fabulous to have an apartment. My building's a lot garden. like that. I no. live on, up on West 94th Street. <laughs> and, um, uh, um, so uh, was this one of the first shopping centers? It was, actually, yes. There were, even earlier than that, there were um, shops rather nearby um, on the Rue Saint-Honoré. So, for example, before there were fashion magazines, these beautiful dress dolls used to be sent around the world, and they were the Poupée de la Rue Saint-Honoré. So that's like a five-minute walk from the Palais Royal. But then the little arcades within the Palais Royal were a good way for the, the Duc d'Orléans to make money by renting them out to, for example, little, you know, modistes, etc., who would be selling delightful little hats and ribbons and things in there. And it was also a center of the sex trade. So oh. ladies of the night would troll through along under the arcades so they wouldn't get wet as they were strolling along. And it was also then under, during the French Revolution, it was a gathering place of some of the revolutionaries who would hang out at the little cafes and preach the, you know, that everyone should revolt. There was an argument um, once that uh, coffee is a beverage of revolution. For That's just right. these reasons, beer is a revolution of, of sedentary people. <laughs> we'll never change anything. Um, uh, so, um, and what do you do when you go there? Why do you like it so much? Oh, it's just so beautiful. It's really, really beautiful. Um, it's, I can just sit in the garden. I mean, you can sit on benches and just read a book and, and look at the flowers, or you can stroll around, stroll in and out of the boutiques and look in the little perfume shop, or there's a beautiful little secondhand clothing store. I mean, secondhand, it's like haute couture from the past, amazingly wow. beautiful things that were from previous uh, decades. Or you can look at the, the Rick Owens shop is there. That's a t always a temptation. So yes, it's there. There are fabulous shops, and you can stop and have a glass of wine or a cup of coffee or lunch or something. Um, so when they built this, to go back to this, um, when it was built in the late 18th century, um, was shopping then a, a kind of social activity? There, uh, I'm looking for a contrast between going to a couture house, and it's a, a rather private thing. And here, shopping is out in public, and you're strolling around, you're seeing people. Well, you met people at the couture house, too. I mean, people complained yeah. in the 19th century that 
you saw both respectable wives and not respectable courtesans going up and down the stairs of the uh. couture houses, you know, at the same time. Um, so you met people there. You weren't alone in a couture house. And these little, these little shops, 18th century shops, were quite different. Um, you went in and you had to ask for things. Nothing was put out for you. You'd have to ask to look at, you know, ribbons or gloves or something. Um, and to a certain extent, the saleswomen were also sort of for sale. You would have gentlemen outside lurking, looking in the windows to see if they could try and pick somebody up in there. Uh, some of the people who had little shops became extremely successful. Uh, Rose Bertin did not have her shop, the Grand Mogul and the Palais Royal, but it wasn't that far away. And she was known as the, the, the minister of fashion for Marie Antoinette. And she'd make every, her other clients come to her shop to buy things. But of course, she took her products out to, to Versailles to show them to the queen. And then she would get back, and the Baroness Doberker would complain that uh, Rose Bertin would boast terribly about her you know, connections with the queen and how she'd invented this or that fabulous thing for the queen. And the Baroness said, you every once in a while, you had to slap her down and remind her that she was just a you know, little dressmaker. <laughs> just a little dressmaker. Um, <laughs> Was, um, I read that this was the time when uh, plate glass windows were coming in, again, that sh at the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century. And could you, could you start to make an analogy between shops and museums? Oh, people did in the 18th century. Yeah. Absolutely they did. Um, my ancestor, Sir Richard Steele, uh, started a magazine with Addison called The Spectator in London. Uh, your ancestor is Steele of Addison and Steele? Yeah. That's so cool. Um, I thought my grandfather made that up because he was a big liar like Chanel. But in fact, my uh, sister does all this genealogy research and it took her about half an hour to say, oh yeah, that was true. Wow. But anyway, that's beside the point. The point is that London was an even better shopping town in the 18th century than Paris. Um, it was, there was more, it was more deluxe. But the windows were an important part of it. Windows and sidewalks and arcades, like in the Palais Royal, where you could get off of the street because the streets in Paris were particularly dangerous and dirty through most of the 18th century. So as you were carefully picking your way along with the mud and the animal refuse and carriages were knocking you over, it was really dangerous. And people thought, wow, they have this thing in London called sidewalks. It's such a genius <laughs> invention. But also, the windows were there, and you could window shop to some extent. And, but the museum thing, yes. In The Spectator, someone wrote in a letter saying that he had been out shopping with a male friend of his, and they got to thinking that fashion was an important part of modern life, and there ought to be a kind of museum for fashion, the way there were libraries for books and cabinets for medals and things. And so they were, were reminiscing about this idea, you could set up a museum of fashion and shape it like the Sphinx, and you would have anybody who invented a new fashion could bring it in on a little doll, like those French Paris yeah. fashion dolls, and put it on a shelf, like I invented this fashion, just like you had books on a shelf. And then you would hire someone, like a, some, some fop who'd lost all his money buying clothes, and you'd make him the curator of the fashion museum. So people at the time were already saying, as I was shopping, I started to think, maybe you could put this stuff in a museum. Well. I'm already stopped by the idea that there was this whole room full of impoverished pops that were available <laughs> for hire. It's great, like people waiting around to do your yard work. Um, um, but um, I, no, I was thinking that were the shops themselves, or, or, or maybe slightly later when we get department stores, they're already, that's the, department the museum. Stores. The department that's the store moment. is the museum. It's the yeah? second half of the 19th century. Oh, yeah. this is later. And, and Paris does have the first one, Au Bon Marché, that Zola writes the great novel um, Ladies' Paradise, about uh, how the big windows then had mannequins in them with dresses and elaborate displays, the fabrics coming down, the fans opening, the parasols hanging from above, and peasants who were new to the city would stand outside with their mouths open because they couldn't, said, who are those ladies standing behind the window? And it's like, no, those are mannequins, they're, they're dress forms. And instead of heads, they might have the price of the dress written on it. But yes, it was like a museum, there were amazing window displays like a vitrine at the museum. You got inside, there were elevators, there were fabulous displays. Instead of like the little old-fashioned stores where you said, could I look at a glove? 
and they put down one glove. Can I look at a second glove? Instead, there were a whole array of gloves on the counters, and you could handle them and look at them and try and steal them. Kleptomania became a new disease, quote unquote, in the wow. department stores because the ladies started. If you were poor, you were just arrested as a thief, but if you were a middle-class lady, they suggested to your husband that he might take you to a, a doctor who could treat you for your kleptomania. So this is a 19th century idea, mm -hmm. and tied to, and, well, tied to shopping like, in the department store, wow. where everything was out in the open. Wow, this is fantastic. Well, is this another reason then for, um, to despise Jeff Bezos? Um, not that we need one, because um, there, you know, there are many reasons to despise them. But, but that you make shopping sound um, so sociable. So, oh, shopping was was and really Amazon's exciting. all about something you can do at home without ever leaving your apartment. I, I hate my, I don't want to stay in my apartment. Well, shopping was actually very important to get middle class women out of the home because prior to that, for middle class women in, to be on the street, they were people would throw stones at them and accuse them of being street walkers. But bank being able to go to department stores, which were safe territory for women. They were somewhat indoors and you could go shopping there. Um, it was part of an, ex an expanding world that, you know, first you go to the department store and then you go to the little chocolate cafe and then pretty soon you can go to a nightclub and women, women are colonizing more and more of the city because shopping was a world that it was not only their pleasure, but their duty to go shopping for their family. Oh, was this the same time, um, um, just, I guess, over there we had the Ladies, ladies mile. mile. Yes, exactly. It's the same kind of thing? Same kind of thing. Oh, so in some ways, it's, it, it's, we should be embarrassed forever mocking um, uh, rigid Islamic culture uh, where, where women's lives were so circumscribed, are so circumscribed, since what you're describing seems not unlike that, and just five minutes ago, really. Just five minutes ago in historical terms, of oh, course. So it's a woman's space. It's a very gendered space. It's very much a gendered space, exactly. And although men would go in, just as they go in malls in the Middle East, still it was seen as a, it was a safe, protected space where women could go and, and, and hang out all day. I mean, there were cafes in the department store. There were places where you could drop off your baby. There were libraries. There were writing rooms where you could write letters to people. I mean, you could spend all day in the department store. Um, as it becomes a more egalitarian society, um, commercial transactions start to look very limited to me. And, and I yearn for places you can go and be with other people and not spend money. And, and so what do we have? We have libraries and parks, right? Mm. Is, is there other public space? Very little public space has not been commodified and commercialized. Yeah. But you know, you asked before about ready-to-wear. The department store was one of the first places that sold ready-to-wear. Oh, so when are we talking about? Middle of the 19th century. And when did they invent um, sizes? That came in gradually for men first. And oh, yeah? Yeah, because uh, sort of initially for army uniforms. That was the big push towards sizing. Sort of small, medium, large, and then it would, they'd try and fit, because sizing is not an easy thing to do. It takes, it's fairly complicated in tailoring. And the, then once you start mass manufacturing, say corsets, I mean, that's very intimate. Of course, it fits your body exactly, theoretically, if it's a handmade corset. But already by the 1860s, you had mass produced steam molded corsets, which were coming in set sizes. And in the ladies' clothes at a department store. You could buy a ready-made corset in a set size, ready-made, you know, cape. The dress, though, was only partly ready-made. In order to have it fitted over your corset to your body, exactly, you had to take it to your little dressmaker, who would, not your couturier, but your little dressmaker, who would then sew it to fit it to your body. So the assumption is you would, you would or the experience is you go to the department store, you pick out a dress nominally in your size, yeah. and then you take it, it to your dressmaker. It would be touched up then. To, fit you exactly, which actually you probably should do with most of the ready-to-wear you buy now because it doesn't really fit you that well. You should take it to a tailor to have it Nothing fit. I'm wearing fits me at all. <laughs> I, I know, it's uh, so sad. It was uh, really intimidating um, <laughs> when I went to my closet and thought, well, I'm going to talk to you tonight. What will I wear? It's like mm -hmm. having a chef over for dinner. I just gave up, uh, as well. you can see. <laughs> um, uh, so I apologize, and I, 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 my only defense is that it's radio. Um, that's right, that's so right, it's If you great. want to say anything about how well-dressed I am, <laughs> this would be your chance. Um, um, 
do places like the Palais Royal have a future, or, or are they are they museums in another sense now that they're inherently nostalgic? Well, I don't think that places like the Palais Royal, or indeed Paris in general, are entirely museified or nostalgic. I mean, it is still a real city that real people live in, and um, it's fashion has become much more polarized between luxury fashion and fast fashion. So if you think a lot of former shopping areas like the Champs-Élysées are just like McDonald's and sort of it's very trashy looking. Um, but I think that... You know they sponsored the show. <laughs> nah, Sorry. they don't. I hate that um, stuff. Nah. But I think that people do still like to go to particular places to buy things, even if it's just serendipitous if you can find something new at a place. And that's getting harder and harder because everything, you go around the world and most of the time it's the same stuff that you see in yeah. every store. So it, it is kind of, you have to look carefully for little stores where they, I hate to use this word, it's awful to say, curate the merchandise so that it's carefully chosen, the way a curator would choose things for a museum exhibition, to try and give you some surprises and things that you wouldn't find everywhere. And is it, um, are we doomed by the, um, the spectacle of vacant storefronts, it, certainly in my neighborhood in the Upper West Side, but all over the city? Is that part of this trend where it gets harder and harder to sustain this sort of joyful, sociable thing? Well, I don't think you're doomed to it. I mean, the the owners of that real estate are making a choice that if they can't rent it for $100,000 a month, they choose to leave it empty. If they wanted to rent it for 15000 a month, they could probably find someone to be there. Then what's your thing? High heel shoes. <laughs> Any particular high heel shoes? Well, no, it's that um, women tend to not fixate on one particular style of shoes the way men tend to. So it, for many years, I really loved high heel shoes, all kinds of different ones, and much less so now. Uh, but when I was young, yes, I was wearing high heels all the time in college at Dartmouth, where nobody wore high heels at all. Uh, I would go across the ice leaning on the arm of my gay friend across the icy fields wearing high heels. And, you know, I would run around, when I was pregnant, run around and everyone would go, you can't wear high heels when you're pregnant. And I'm like, why not? Um, so anyway, high heels were important to me in a way that I think that they have been important to a lot of women because they seem so closely associated with femininity and erotic femininity and a particular kind of image. And it's also, I remember once talking with Robin Givon, the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, uh, who is a really brilliant person, and we were talking about power. And I said, well, what kind of clothes do you associate with power? And she said, high heels. And again, you sort of have, they have this, they may relatively immobilize you in real life, but they give you a, a feeling of power and confidence. Um, but so it's complicated though. It's complicated. Because there are plenty of people who don't like high heels. And I hardly ever wear them now, partly because I'm afraid of falling down and breaking a wrist or something. But I used to be able, like a, like a drag queen, I used to be able to run up and down in high heels and do everything in them. Um, and no higher praise, by the way, than like a drag queen. Exactly. That's the model of athleticism in heels. In heels, exactly. It's like a drag queen. Um, so, but you've given it up because you feel like, well, you're like an athlete that's passed uh, out of her prime and now you have a different kind of life, but are, you're not giving them up for ideological reasons. What, would, what reasons would that be? Well, that they're reactionary. I, oh, in no, a feminist no. sense that they, by immobilizing women, um, uh, making women less mobile, uh, they're like foot binding. Yeah, but they're not. Um, they're, the, <laughs> well, okay. they're just the fact that we just talked about how drag queens and I in my youth used to be able to run around in them proves that they're not immobilizing for everybody. Besides, more importantly, the meaning of any item of clothing is not in the clothing itself. It's in the context and the minds of the people who are wearing and looking at it. It's something that we construct and reconstruct. And there's definitely a very strong feeling among a lot of women and some men who don't really know very much about it, that <laughs> high heels are, uh, you know, reactionary and an impediment, which they say without ever having worn them. But um, many women feel that, and I can definitely see the aspects of that that are true, but it's a question of 
what feels reactionary to one person may feel liberating or right. to another. So it's, very, it's a very subjective thing. For example, the, the idea of comfort. When I used to live in Bali, and I was friends with an older artist who was, had been invited to go to England. And he said to me, I can't go. They would make me wear trousers and shoes. It's just so uncomfortable, I can't even think about it. You know, com compared to going barefoot or wearing flip-flops and a sarong, it just seemed impossible to conceive of that. And with clothes, we all make very intimate decisions about what is comfortable, what feels confidence-making, and what you want to wear for a particular moment. Right. These meanings are cultural. They're not inherent in the physical shoe itself, but that doesn't make the meanings less real. Right, but it doesn't make the meaning in the object. It's something no, that... No, no, I agree, yeah. yeah. And um, part of the issue, of course, is whether you feel you have to wear heels. Now, those girls in Japan, the office workers in Japan, who have to wear heels every day, and they have to be real heels, at least three inches, then obviously that would feel deeply oppressive, even to somebody who, on the whole, liked heels and wanted to wear them out on a date in the evening. If you're being told you have to wear them eight, nine, ten hours a day, that's something different entirely. Well, isn't there um, a, a law either that was just passed or that's moving through Parliament, I want to say, in England, that uh, uh, an employer cannot require an employee to wear heels? In England, yes. In Japan, no. In Japan, that was not passed as a law. In Japan, that, um, right, right. Um, but is there a case to be made? I, I, I'll I, I'm not sure. It's complicated, and I, I, I'm not anti-heel. Um, uh, am I not flesh? Have I not been aroused? Uh, yes, I have. But I'm not entirely comfortable with it. Yeah. And, and if an item of clothing is um, physically damaging to the wearer... But wait, you have to, again, if you wear high heels on a date, does it damage you? Yes. No. I'm told. No, it doesn't. If you wear lots of high heels all the time, it will do things like shorten your calf muscles. It might give you bunions. It might cause you back pain. Not inevitably, but it might. So it's a question of what's, uh, how high are they? Or what are you doing in them? Is it every day? But no, the fact, mere fact of wearing them is harming you. It's not true. Well, but couldn't you say the same thing about a corset, too? A whalebone corset I have where said you were actually, you know, I have ribs said were being thing. broken. Your ribs were not broken premature by your corset. Infants were being miscarried. People blamed People miscarriages breathe. on corsets. But they also blamed, no, no, they blamed uh, women's uh, university education on making their uterus dry out because all their blood went to their <laughs> right. brain. You simply cannot trust what 19th century doctors said. When I wrote my corset book, yeah. I worked with a doctor and with a nurse, and we, we, we looked at all these medical accounts, like the corset causes a scoliosis, curvature of the spine. Not. In fact, it is still used to correct scoliosis. Modern doctors will put you in a corset to correct scoliosis. It causes... Um, cancer, no evidence of that at all. It causes um, nymphomania, again, no evidence of that. It causes... Wait, there's no evidence of that? No, no, no. evidence of that. It causes your liver to... I was changing my gift list for this split year. Split in I half. Can... No, there, if you, there's a variant of livers that you find if you dissect people that a lot of them have an extra lobe. And these 19th century doctors were like, aha, it's these stupid women and their stupid clothes. They split their liver in half. Their, the entire tendency among 19th century and 18th century doctors was to blame women for their diseases. If they had a miscarriage, it was their fault. If something went wrong with them, it was their fault. We read one account where they said this, this young woman who was a servant was killed from tight, she died from tight lacing. Her there corset you go. was too tight. The roof fell in on her. <laughs> so see. how do you make this? So what we found right, okay. was, yes, that like high heels, it can cause problems for you, including digestive problems. It can rub the skin. It can do unpleasant things. But the big diseases that it's been blamed for, there's either no evidence that it caused it, or later on doctors found the evidence for what did cause those things, and it wasn't a corset. So you've got this, this whole tendency, which is culture-wide, to blame women for what they're wearing, 
which is, I think, a really serious problem and which has extended culturally way beyond, you know, corsets and high heels, but oh, if they wore something which was too body revealing, they're gonna catch pneumonia. I mean, it's always been, it's a, it's a, ten, a knee jerk tendency. One dress reformer said that um, only women and savages like colors and jewelry, like piercing your ears. Women needed to grow up and be like men and wear dark, serious clothes and stop wearing jewelry. But because you can find reactionary goofballs um, to say ridiculous things doesn't mean that every critique of uh, wardrobe is, is equally foolish. Not equally foolish, but the exaggeration always tends to be there. So that when I've talked to audiences, they go, but there has to be some serious disease that corsets cause. Or, I mean, there has to be an immediate punishment for women who wear high heels. Whereas most women realize that it all depends how high are your heels? What are you wearing them all the time? How tight was that corset? All these stories of 16-inch waists were wildly exaggerated. Well, okay, what about this? So toward, at the end of the 19th century, both I believe definitely here in New York and I believe also in Paris, there's a cycling craze. Yes. And that became associated with feminism. And one reason was, was the shift to bloomers and loose-fitting clothing, sportswear that was something you could do sports in. Um, but that was, was a movement to ride your bicycle. You had to move away from a corset and you had to wear bloomers. And Susan B. Anthony thought that, that nothing was more liberating to women than the bicycle. The bicycle was perceived as incredibly liberating. But most women rode bicycles wearing dresses with skirts and they wore corsets, albeit sports corsets. But by the second right, half of the 19th century... once you're saying sports corset, I think you're... You know. A sports yeah, corset really? is an unboned corset that supports your bust and that you can link your stockings to. It's, corsets are not all boned. There were plenty of unboned corsets, just as, and plenty of big size corsets. All right, all right. <laughs> uh, no, no, um, uh, so what do you make then of the shift from, um, to sneakers? The rise the sneakers, of the sneakers, yes. The sneaker shift is fascinating because there's so many young people, uh, especially males, but also a lot of young women, who you kind of wonder if they've ever worn a pair of leather shoes in their lives, because the sneakers are really what they've moved into. Back in 99, I wrote a book and had a show, Shoes, a Lexicon of Style, and it had different categories, you know, high heels, sandals, boots, sneakers, and I really had to talk to these sneaker experts, because it was, I didn't know anything about brands of sneakers. And, it's just as kind of fetishized as the, the high heel was for sexual fetishes. Mm. The sneaker fetishism is amazing. People, teenagers can make tons of money by being able to tell which are gonna be cool sneakers, buying them early, saving them, selling them. But like Barbie dolls, you can't really wear the most valuable ones. Damn. So ag again, the thing with sneakers is it's as much image as it is comfort or oh, convenience. Yeah. Because, you know, if you wear loafers or something, they're probably just as comfortable as most sneakers. Um, and in some ways, easier, too. But sneakers have the cool factor of being, you're, like, young and athletic and hip. Even if the only exercise you do is running to the refrigerator, the sneakers will give you that athletic look and, that, and the young look, that it's a cool look. So that if you have the right sneakers too, then it'll be a particular slice of the young and cool look. Could you make a case that sneakers are less gendered than heels? That a man's sneaker looks a lot more like a, a woman's sneaker than a high heel looks like whatever ugly thing I'm wearing? Yeah, you could. Um, sneakers started out being an active sports shoe and was worn by women playing tennis or as well as men doing mm. it. So you could say it was a more gender neutral shoe. Um, other kinds of shoes are fairly gender neutral too. In fact, that was the category for my, sh my oh, yeah. first shoe show. I had a, a section on high heels, but I also had a, a section on shoes that seemed more gender neutral because people, women also wear lace-up Oxfords and they oh, wear right. loafers okay. and all of these which came sort of from the men's wardrobe. But, but the lace-up Oxford type shoes were already super popular with women by 1910. And in fact, are incredibly beautiful and desirable looking. If you look, look up 1910 women's shoes, they're super cool, except they're too narrow. But men were also wearing narrow shoes then. Um, 
I remember though in this, this section which was sort of neutral, I had Birkenstocks and I got a TV reporter me, from, uh, from Brazil and she came in with her camera crew and made a beeline for the Birkenstocks shrieking, no Latin woman would wear shoes like these. All right, so what did that mean? That they were um, uh, unerotic? They unerotic, were... yeah. They were completely unerotic. But now Birkenstocks are super cool. And the coolest designers, you know, like Rick Owens, are doing collaborations with Birkenstock. So it's really an interesting phenomenon, uh, starting, I think, mostly in the 80s, that certain kinds of things that have been branded as ugly and out started to then be picked up and re configured as being cool and in. Sure. Um, uh, what about this case, too, that this shift to the sneaker is a shift in, in social class, that high heels, uh, designer shoes, are, are a product of the upper classes, but sneakers are a product of regular people? Not really, because you could pay $1,000 for a pair of Balenciaga sneakers, just like you could for a pair of Balenciaga shoes, and you can get you know, $20 high heels, and you right. can, if you so search, you get 20 those associate, class associations don't come into it? It's, they, it's, they haven't disappeared entirely, but you have to, you sort of have to be able to tell the difference between an $800 pair of high heels and a $20 one. And then once you can do that, then you can tell the difference. And the kids can do that with the sneakers, too. I feel that's a, a metaphor for my entire life, is once I can tell the difference between a $20 anything and a $1,000 <laughs> anything, I'd be a, a much better person. Um, uh, will, you, will you take some questions? Of course, I'd be happy um, to. I, I see a hand here, I see okay. a hand here. Here's a hand, I, right there. <sighs> Tokyo, Tokyo, which is my second favorite city, which is actually in many ways more fashionable than uh, Paris. Um, but it's, it's a fashion which for the most part stays in Japan. Uh, Tokyo never really became the fifth fashion capital because the best designers decided that they would show in Paris. So oddly enough, even after the Japanese fashion revolution of the 80s, which transformed global fashion, um, it ended up reinforcing the power of, of Paris. But yeah, everything I'm wearing now is, is Japanese. Yeah. I'm curious why Chanel got credit for the little black dress. It's a very interesting phenomenon because historically you can find there others had already gotten a huge amount of play for it, like Preme a couple of years before Chanel's. Chanel's famous one was 1926, her one that, that Vogue magazine called the Fashion Ford, since Ford said he'd produce cars in any color you wanted as long as they were black. And people had been doing little black dresses um, initially because of the war for mourning dresses all through World War I in France. And then afterwards, it continued and really all, all designers did it. It was part of a movement of taste away from the very bright, often garish colors of the pre-war years to black and beige. And Chanel claimed credit for that too. She said that Poiret's bright, you know, orientalist colors nauseated her, and she brought in black and beige and navy blue. But a lot of people were doing that. It was, again, I think part of this modern woman thing that women started picking up on some of the, the dandyish colors which had been associated with menswear and were creating a more androgynous style of dress for themselves. And it was a style which was also kind of pioneered by lesbians in Paris and London. And so why, why she got credit for it? I mean, I think, again, partly because she told people for decades about this, because uh. she lied about everything in her life. But she, she lived for a really long time, and she told generations of journalists, I invented the little black dress. I'm the first woman who cut her hair. I invented designer perfume. And after a while, they, younger journalists didn't know. They weren't historians doing research, and they just repeated the stories. Chanel liberated women. When she was young, her first career, you know, from 1913 to 1939, she was mostly competing with women designers, and she hated them. 
Um, but after the war, she was mostly competing with men like Dior and Foth, and, and she hated them, and started <laughs> saying nasty things about male homosexuals. So, I mean, whenever she had competition or something, she would react in a very ugly way. Uh, Valerie, yes. hi. Thank you for wonderful information again. And you mentioned something about the little Parisian dolls. Yes. We were on your tour of uh, Paris capital yes. of fashion, and we saw the dolls. Yes. Um, under what occasion, or for what occasion, would someone give one of those dolls to well, someone? Um, initially, the dolls were sold. They were a, a marketing device. And so they were sold uh, by the, the marchand the, on the, on the uh, Rue de Rivoli to, um, not the Rue de Rivoli, um, the Rue Saint-Honoré, to dressmakers primarily around Paris and the provinces, to, uh, in London, in New York, in Philadelphia. I mean, dressmakers everywhere would, would get these, as would certain elite clients. So queens, ladies, etc., would also order them. And then they would have their dressmakers in the provinces or in another country um, make a dress in that shape and try and acquire fabric like that from Paris. Because a lot of it was a question of the silhouette staying more or less the same, but the dress patterns and decoration being different. So these things ended up all around the world. Um, that one that we have in the exhibition is a super beautiful one with a really elaborate court dress and it was from a collection in England, from the Bath Museum of Fashion. And that one just, all that's left is the, the form, there's no head on it, but some of them do have heads. And last, a couple years ago in Paris, I saw an amazing life-size one. And actually the first thing that you see when you come in the first room of the gallery, there's a giant replica of a fashion plate which shows a life-size fashion doll being dressed, and it's a naked doll, hairless, being dressed by, um, milliners in Paris as part of the French uh, global domination. Yes. Um, in your opinion, I think there's a debate on what fashion actually means and a bit confusion. So in your opinion, what does fashion mean to you? Well, this is an interesting question because uh, there are lots of definitions of fashion. You could say fashion is a verb. To fashion something means to make it in a particular style. And um, there's much to be said about that because dress is anything that's put on or hangs on the body or that, that's added to the body. And at a certain point in history, we think, probably the Middle Ages in Europe, um, style started to change more and more rapidly. And that wasn't just at courts, but it was in cities too. And it seems to have to do with the rise of an elaborate urban commercial space. So that fashion is, is not just about status clothing, which you had in ancient Egypt and in ancient Rome, but also about things that were the fashion of that moment. So in Shakespeare's day, Shakespeare calls fashion a deformed thief who, quote, wears out more apparel than the man. And he's <laughs> deformed because he keeps changing shape. And long before that coat is, has worn out, it's out of fashion, and so you need a new one. Nowadays, we know that in at least some non-Western places, in Japan, in China, there were things that were essentially fashion. It, but for whatever reasons, they didn't seem to develop as fully, maybe having to do with the particular rise of capitalism in Western Europe that pushed it further by the 18th century into a, a constantly changing pattern. So that by 17th century in Paris, you had fall fashions and spring fashions, and those were reported on. In Japan, you had sort of the same thing, but it was more like um, fall colors and spring colors, which would change every season. Because already by the ninth century in Japan, the word imamakashi, up to date, was a high term of praise. No one wanted to be out of date. And to be up to date seems to me to be like to be in fashion. Another question? Yes, back there. Hello, um, I wanted to ask you uh, if you could speak about the prevalence of female fashion designers at the beginning of that century, and especially around the Art Deco period, mm -hmm. and was a lot of that to do with the fact that men went away to war, to the First yeah. World War? 
interesting, that's a good point. Um, many years ago, I saw an exhibition at FIT called Three Women, which compared the work of Madeleine Vianney in the 20s and 30s, and teens, and Claire McArdle in the 40s and 50s, and Rei Kawakubo in Japan in the 80s. And this got me thinking, when and why have women been successful as fashion designers? And in what other periods have men tended to dominate? And it really varies historically. Um, traditionally, in most of the world, women made clothes for their families. When it gets to be a commercial endeavor, men tended to move in, uh, and yet already by the 17th and 18th century, women dressmakers and women dress decorators were able to form their own guilds, and so they were making clothes for women and children commercially. And that was the norm from the 18th century right up through halfway through the 19th century. And there were few male dress designers, but not many. Tailors were men. They made tailored suits for men and, and tailored suits for women. So when Worth came in, in the middle of the 19th century, it was a real shock that he was a male designer. And Dickens wrote an article saying how shocking it was that in Paris there were real men with their hairy fingers dressed and undressed the highest ladies of the land. And woohoo, it's like, wow, a male designer. But as, fashion, as Worth helped transform fashion from being a small-scale craft with a working-class woman, Madam, can I make this dress for you, kneeling down and sewing your hem, to being big business with hundreds or thousands of people working for you, then suddenly men moved in, and they had women working for them b backstage, but they were the big businessmen. And women very quickly started to compete with them. So by 1900, Jean Paquin was not only having hundreds of workers for her, too, but she was elected the president of the equivalent of the Chambre Syndicale de la Haute Couture Parisienne. So they moved up, and Chanel wasn't the first already by 1900. Paquin was a big deal. The Callot sisters were a big deal. Um, it's not so much that men were killed in World War I, although the French lost 1.25 million people in World War I. It was a massacre. And they did have a severe disproportion of men and women after the war. But I think that, more importantly, the success of women in the 20s and 30s, you see it in America, too, where there was no shortage of men. Um, I think it was because people thought this was a new era for women, and they thought women were better able to twig what new women wanted. And then after the war, when it cost more money to set up a couture house, and you could make a lot of money, and there were now a tradition saying fashion, couture anyway, is an art. Jacques Foss said, fashion is an art and men are the artists. The only role a woman should have in fashion is wearing clothes. He said that in like 1953, it's a Life magazine. And of course, a lot of women designers were like, uh, uh, do you remember Chanel and Viennet? They were really successful in the 20s and 30s. And pretty soon, Chanel starts up again in the 50s, partly because she can't stand it that there are all of these men in fashion. And it gradually starts to change what ready to wear. If men have glommed on to couture and kept most of that, women in France say, launch into ready to wear. And in America and London, too, they launch into boutiques and youth fashions. So they find niches where they can come in. And gradually, it's sort of a parody now, but probably still slight preponderance of the more ex uh, famous designers are men. And furthermore, if you compare the number of fashion students, like FIT's typical, 85% of the students are female, only 15% are male. Mm -hmm. But if you look in the world of fashion designers, named designers, it tends to be about 50-50. Um, and backstage, sort of unnamed designers, that's often where you have uh, maybe more women or more minorities. Uh, it's really, it's not an, still not an equal playing field. Um, but I think that wherever it's valued as an art or big business or a big money maker, men tend to move in. And in a way, it's, in a way it matters less now who's the designer than who owns the company. If you, my, my little niece is 15 now. When she was young, she said, I want to be a fashion designer when I grow up. 
And then a couple of years later, she said, I want to be a fashion CEO when I grow up. <laughs> now she's moved on to other things. But um, she twigs that actually the power was really in the business half of it more than in the creative half. Does that sort of answer your question? It's gone way up and down, and it varies from country to country. There have been more successful women designers in England, but that's because there's less money to make in fashion in England. In France, it's been kept mostly for men because it's a huge money maker and a huge prestige field. So the short answer is just sexism. Well, no, it's a sort of structural sexism, like oh, okay. structural racism. Yeah. It's not just personal. Ah, it's, yeah, built, yeah. it's built into yeah. the whole system. Perhaps our work here is done. Thank you, guys. Uh, join Thanks me again, for being and thank here. you, Valerie Steele.